Last New Year's Day, I was diagnosed with diabetes. Happy New Year. I remember going into the emergency room, blood sugar was high. They did a thing called, back in those days, the glucose tolerance test. Found out that it had been high for a while. And, um, and then I remember when the doctor said, we think you have diabetes. And I remember uh, taking the gum. I had gum in my pocket and I threw it at him. Uh, and I just said, my life is over. He said, well, this means you cannot eat anything you want to eat. In fact, you can't eat most things you want to eat. So you got to learn to take insulin. You got to learn to eat right. You got to learn to exercise. Uh, and then um, they cut me loose. I couldn't accept this. I couldn't believe that, that your life could end so quickly um, when I was 19. And so I, I didn't eat right. And I, um, I was always exercising, but I didn't eat right. And as a result, my blood sugar got higher and higher. And uh, by the time I came back to college that fall, I was at IWU, um, it was out of control. <clears throat> and when your blood sugar is out of control, it means that there's uh, too much sugar in your blood. And when there's sugar in your blood, uh, what the body does naturally is it reaches into itself and pulls water from itself in order to dilute the sugar that is in your blood. It's trying to protect itself. And of course, when it does this, you get thirsty. So I resorted to drinking fruit juice to quench the thirst. That was not a good idea. The fruit juice only added uh, more sugar solutes to the blood, which only took more fluid from my body and to, to dilute it, and I got even thirstier. Uh, in fact, at one point, um, I would drink a whole half gallon straight down of apple juice. It was my favorite. So we timed it one day. They called me the mad quaffer. And um, in 63 seconds, I drank a half gallon of apple juice in order to quench my thirst, not knowing that that was only going to drive the sugar up. Finally, I decided that because I was starting to lose strength, I was dizzy, I was emaciated, I was pulling out, I was missing classes, I wasn't going over to the food center, I was in a really bad condition. I got in my car and I drove all the way to Flint, Michigan so I could get some medical help. When I got there in the emergency room, they discovered my blood sugar was over 900. Uh, just for the record, 120 is the high end of normal. By 600, some, a lot of people are already in comatose. But at 900, you should certainly be dead. And so they called in my parents and they said, you might want to spend the night because the medicine we have at our disposal right now may not get the sugar down fast enough uh, before his body shuts down. By the grace of God, it did. They got the sugar down, they got it normal, uh, and the thirst went away. Then my parents decided I need to go see an old friend of mine who was my former baseball coach. He was a doctor of Doc Detman. Um, because he knew us, he was straightforward. He could say anything he wanted. And when I went into his, uh, his office to see him, we drove two, three hours to see him. The conversation went something like this. He said, well, Steve, uh, you're, you're in a lot of problems right now, he said, but I don't feel sorry for you. This is your old beep fault. 
I was offended and I said, have you ever had diabetes? He said, no, but diabetes isn't killing you. Foolishness is killing you. You can be a diabetic and live, but you can't be a fool and live. And you're a fool. Um, he said, if you do this right, you can control this and live a normal life. But if you insist on doing what you want to do, you will only make the thirst worse and fall back into the same cycles. So you have a decision to make. You either want to live or you want to die. And if you want to die, then get on with it. But if you want to live, then we have work to do. Well, I thought about it for about a half a second and figured I wanted to live. And then he said, all right, the good news is, as a diabetic, you can eat anything you want. And I just so happen to have a list of things you're going to want. And I also have a list of things that you're not going to want. And the reason you're not going to want them is not because they taste bad. In fact, he said they taste pretty good, but they don't taste better than the things you want. And nothing tastes as good as you'll feel bad after you eat them. So instead of eating with your thirst in mind, you need to eat with the outcome in mind and do what is wise or you will die. Now I said he was a good doctor. He was a terrible therapist. <laughs> but he explained something in so many ways that connect last week and this week. Our problem, we said last week, it is not that we were rebels, but that we are fools. And because we are fools, we do stupid things. We get into stupid things. And before we know it, those things get into us. And when they get into us, they control us. And so our foolishness often leads to a form of captivity or bondage. Last week, I talked to you about the importance of following Christ as the wisdom for life. Today, I want to talk about another condition, the condition of bondage versus freedom. What is the gospel of freedom? Americans are high on freedom. They have the Bill of Rights. They have civil rights. They have uh, the Declaration of Independence. They have the Statue of Liberty, those yearning to be free. They have the four freedoms. But the more I think about it, you guys, I'm not sure the Americans know what freedom is. Because every time we pursue it, it seems our lives get smaller and worse, not larger and strong. So in order to answer this, I went back to the Bible and I figured the way to discover what freedom is, it was to go back to the day of creation. How were we formed? How were we made? And in what environment do we flourish as human beings? Here's what I discovered from Genesis chapter one and two. In the beginning, when God created us, only God was free, but he made us in his image and in his likeness. And therefore, he made us free. Our freedom as created beings 
exists as long as we are in God and with God. What this means is that if I come to God and ask him to set me free, he can't do it. Because freedom is never something God gives us. It is something God is. And so I never get it so much as I do enter it when I enter back into God. He won't give it, not because he's stingy, but because it doesn't exist apart from him. I want something that isn't even there. So as I come back into God, I come closer and closer to my freedom because that's where I came from and that's how I was made. So God, after forming me, set me in a garden. I was surrounded by everything I needed and everything I loved. He gave me a couple of things. He said, Steve, I want you to work the garden and I want you to take care of it. And as I did these things, you guys, the trees began to flourish. They produced fruit. They multiplied. And as they did, I found my life was more meaningful. Freedom is being involved in something that gives life to the rest of the garden. This is where the Americans got it wrong. The Americans think that freedom is had by looking into themselves and trying to figure out who they are. No, the only reason to know who you are is to know how you can give your life to the world. So if you want to measure your freedom, you should measure to what degree are you able to give your life to the world. If you pursue it by looking only at yourself, you will miss it every time. And as you give your life to the world, the things around you begin to flourish and they reproduce. You get more creative. You learn a mastery and a skill that you did not have before. Therefore, your life is getting larger and larger and your options are getting more and they're getting varied. Your horizons are getting further and higher. Your life is larger. Inside of this garden, God gave me one rule with two sides. One of those sides I'm calling permission. He said, you may eat from any tree that's in the garden. The other side I'm calling restraint. But you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. Listen closely. My freedom exists so long as I am in God and with God in the place that God has put me. In that place, I navigate between my permission, what does God allow me to do, and the restraint, what has God forbidden me to do? It is right here where the Americans got it wrong again. They confuse 
any amount of restraint with an infringement upon their freedom. Anytime we want to do something and someone says, you must not do that, they see that as someone limiting their freedom. In reality, they're protecting your freedom. If you want your skills to grow, if you want to get better at something, you want to learn a sport and master it, you want to learn an instrument and master it. You want to learn a language and master it. You can only do this in between permission and restraint. There are things you can do and things you must not do. And if you miss that, you'll not get better. You won't. Entered the lie. One day a serpent said to Eve, did God really say that you cannot eat from any tree that's in the garden? She caught this. She said, no, that's not what he said. He said, we may eat from any tree, but we must not eat from the tree or touch it that's in the middle of the garden or we will surely die. The serpent said, you will not die. God knows in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like him. You'll know good from evil. And therein is the first lie. For the first time, Adam and Eve begin to imagine that permission and restraint no longer work together. They compete. Freedom, they imagine, is unbridled permission, such that we can even do the thing that was forbidden. By separating freedom from restraint, the serpent locates their happiness in something other than God. God knows that in the day you eat of that, you'll be happy. Translated, there is something either in the fruit or in the act of eating it that will give you something you do not already have. Any attempt to limit that permission is arbitrary. And anyone who does that is unfair. And so, permission and restraint are opposite each other. So they eat it. And their eyes are opened. And they know good from evil not because the fruit has given them some kind of magical wisdom, but because they who were once only good have now tasted evil. It is by experience that they have lived in both worlds. This tension between permission and restraint 
is played out throughout the entire scripture. In fact, ever since the Garden of Eden, it seems human beings seem to run toward freedom in one of two ways. They either chase after it in ultimate permission, which becomes a form of recklessness. It's a kind of wantonness, an impulsiveness, a capriciousness. They do whatever they want to do, and then what they do does them. And they can't get free from it. They're trapped in the thirst drink, thirst drink cycle, and they can't get loose. The other form of slavery that humans are fond of is all restraint. And this is not recklessness. This is what I'm calling religion. They, they move inside of systems that are well-defined and well-controlled. And while this person says, I'll do what I think is best, this person says, I only do what they think is best. So here the authority is located in the person and here it's always located in a system that is supposed to be good for the person. Are you tracking? Here, they are slaves to sin. And here, they are slaves to God. Suddenly, it is not their sins that diminish them. It's their God that diminishes them. And the way you know this is because the more they talk about their God, the smaller their lives seem. They do not seem free at all. Their lives seem narrow and almost conscripted by design. There's a rigidity. There's an intolerance. There's a lack of compassion. There's a stubbornness that comes over religious people in the name of freedom. Are you there? Now, these two people, what I'm calling the freaks and the geeks, they don't like each other. Um, th these people... Um, neither one of them can see their own nakedness. They only see the nakedness of the other. So they only see in the other what they don't want to become. So this person, in a form of recklessness, looks at the religious person and says, well, as bad as my life may be, at least I'm not a self-righteous, bigoted hypocrite like all those people. I'm honest about my sins. Yeah, but you're still in them. <laughs> and they're still diminishing you. Your life is getting weaker, not stronger. You keep weak. And these people look across the other side and they say, well, I may have some issues. That's true, but they're not really sins because I'm Christian. And at least I'm not like those people who are trapped in all of these kinds of addictions. I'm in a good company. And the problem with both of them, aside from the fact that they don't like each other, and aside from the fact that they dabble in the other side, 
This one here, the religious person who grew up in church, doesn't commit the sin, but they still have the desires. They can do in their mind what this person's doing with their body. But because they're surrounded by religious people, they would never do it with their body. Besides, there's consequences. But they can't break free from the desire to do the things that the other person is doing. And this person over here, the way they manage it, is they create a religious system that allows them to confess it, to take the sacrament, uh, or whatever religious people do because that placates the sin. In other words, both of them are following a system that was designed to forgive us, but it was not designed to set us free. And what this creates is people in both camps, among the irreligious or the very religious, is a cycle of sinning and confessing and sinning and confessing because doesn't the Bible say that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins? Just say that. Rarely a person will die for someone, says Paul in Romans 5, but every once in a while they'll die for a good person, but no one, no one dies for a bad person. But while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so what we do is we commit the sin or we have the evil thought and we know we shouldn't do it, and we go back to God and ask him to forgive it. The system works like this, people. Sin is an act which incurs the wrath of God. God is good, but he's angry, good and angry. He has to find a way to forgive people but because he's angry and he's just, he does not know how to do it. Hence, Jesus becomes a substitute. God puts Jesus on a cross and then puts onto him all of that wrath. The blood of Jesus covers our sins. And once that happens, we can find forgiveness. But the problem is we don't need just forgiveness. We need to be free. We need to have the power to not do this again. And to the degree that we keep doing it, we are not yet free. Take a mental break. Are you there? Enter Jesus. Early in his career, Jesus uh, went into Nazareth, sat down, they handed him a scroll. To our knowledge, hadn't preached yet. He opened the scroll to Isaiah chapter 61 and he began to read from it. Only he read words that, so far as I can tell, are not all in Isaiah chapter 61. This is what he read. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, 
and he has anointed me to preach the gospel, <laughs> to proclaim freedom for the captives, to open the eyes of the blind, to release the oppressed, and to declare the year of the Lord's favor. There was a pause, and then he rolled up the scroll, and in dead silence he said, on this day, that passage is fulfilled in your hearing. The first note that I made to myself was that ultimate freedom is not a state. It's a person. If you're caught in addictive things this morning and you keep repeating this cycle, good as it is, true as it is, it's only going to throw you to the other side. You're only going to become a prisoner in another camp. I was reading in Ephesians chapter 4 not long ago, and um, another picture began to emerge. There in verse 8, the phrase goes like this, you guys. It says, when he ascended, and that, that's referring to Jesus. When he ascended, he led the captives free. It intrigued me. And so I looked it up, and I noticed that the language was wrong. What he actually said was, when he ascended, he led captivity itself captive. When he ascended, he did not just liberate captives. He took hold of the whole idea of captivity. And another picture began to emerge. Maybe instead of breaking us out of our cycles, Jesus has broken in. Maybe he has taken control of the whole system so that even when I am in my addictive cycles that self-destruct and diminish my power, or I'm in this religiosity that's condemning and critical He has absorbed me. And whatever is wrong with me, as Bonhoeffer put it, whatever else I may be, thou knowest, O Lord, that I am thine. This is powerful because this means one does not have to be rid of their sins in order for God to find you. And if you're religious, you thought you did. Suddenly, a new picture began to emerge. Maybe sin isn't an act. Maybe sin is a nature. Long before the act was the thirst. Maybe what motivates God is not his wrath, but the love of God. Maybe Jesus as well as a substitute, 
is also a presence in my prison. And maybe it's not just his blood that covers. Maybe it's his body that carries, that bears. Maybe he has absorbed my weaknesses and maybe everything I deserve is put upon him. And therefore, by bonding myself with Christ, I am not just forgiven. I'm literally changed. Can you see why when we offer people in either camp the gospel of forgiveness, it just rings hollow? Their problem is not their act. Their problem is their nature. They can't change their nature. They are doing what that nature requires. And what they need is a change of heart, not a better religious system. So Jesus one day uh, is walking and a man who is demon-possessed, um, he's living in the cemetery. He's cutting himself, self-destructive behaviors that are pulling him apart from his community. They're diminishing his strength. He's emaciated. He got into something, then it got into him, and now it's controlling him, and his life is getting smaller and more apart. And Jesus comes walking in to this man's life and the demon that is in him from a distance sees this and runs up to him and falls in front of him and says, I know who you are. Don't cast us out of the region. What is your name? Legion, for we are many. That episode alone tells you that Jesus has the power to break the evil forces that are all around us, often controlling our behavior. Now I realize that this is America and this is an intellectual community. And intellectuals in America hardly believe in evil spirits. We're wrong. Our wrestle is not against flesh and blood. It is against principalities and powers. And just because you can't see them or just because you don't believe in them matters not at all. They are always manipulating the environment that is around us. They have power to offer suggestions into our minds that we believe are our own. Because we've been discipled by a secular age that doesn't believe in spirits. And consider that intelligence. The first thing that Jesus does for people that turn to him is he breaks the power 
of these forces that are around us. They are now subject to him. Frank Lawback said when he got out of bed in the morning before his feet hit the floor, he would say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Some years ago, I figured that might be a good practice. So every morning and again this morning, before my feet hit the floor, I said, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Not because... Um, I'm under control, not because I'm righteous, but because I believe in these powers. And, and I know that some of you don't, um, but I'm telling you, they are powerful. They are currents that are bigger than your life, and you can't control them unless God gets involved the first thing you must do is ask God to subdue the powers that are allied against you. Later in John chapter 8, Jesus met with these people, the people that believed in him. That was the interesting thing. He had an argument with people that believed in him. I didn't think Christians fight it with God, but apparently so. And what he told these believing Jews is that they were slaves. He said, if you sin, you're a slave to sin. But if the sun sets you free, then you're ultimately free. I begin to think, how does God liberate a religious person? And Jesus said, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. <laughs> he frees me in my religion by telling me the truth, even though the truth he tells me does not always match the people in charge of my religion. But the best thing you can do if you grew up religious um, is to go back into the scripture and immerse yourself in the language of Jesus. Stop following just the system and start seeking the person, Jesus Christ. It is essential that the person you find is Jesus, not another belief system. It will. So when I deal with people on this side of the board, and the first thing they say is, I mean, I don't want to be like one of those people, I generally say, I don't either. But I have been these people. What you want is to be ultimately free. And you can't do it unless you are in God and with God in the place God has designed for you. Then when you're free, you will live and create and produce and master in that place. Isn't that what you want? The people around you will get better. And when they do, your life will get bigger, not smaller. Well, how do I do that? 
said one minister, he was a, he was a preacher and he was caught in addictive behaviors. I said, why don't you stop asking God to forgive you and start asking God to change your nature? Your problem is not your act. Your problem is your prison. Wherever you go, you take it with you. Ask God to set you free from that nature and to make you free for the life that he has designed for you. Come to Jesus moment. We have both people in the room right now. We have people that come from this side and you're caught in behaviors that are self-destructive. But if you're in one of these religious colleges, then you can hardly admit that. But you got to admit your life is getting smaller, not larger. You're more removed, not more integrated into the community. And then there are people on this side over here um, that grew up religious uh, and you've been following a system of, of, of rules uh, and principles your whole life and yet there is still something in you that longs for authenticity but in your way. Let me tell you a story. Last one. Once there was a man that had two sons have you heard this? An older and a younger, and the younger son came to him one day and said, Dad, this thing that we had is pretty good, but I'm tired of it. So I want you to give me my inheritance, and I'm going away. The father, not controlling, did that. He gave him a third of the inheritance. That's what he had coming as the younger son. And the man took the inheritance and he went off to a far country and he started to live a riotous life. He gave himself every imaginable pleasure. All permission, no restraint. But because it is the nature of this life to cycle downward and to diminish powers, he woke up one day out of money, out of options, out of room, and he came to his senses. And he said, you know what? Even the servants in my father's house have it better than I do. This is what I should do. I should get up tomorrow morning. I should go back home. And he wrote a speech. Father, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your servants. The speech began. Following morning, he got up and he ran back home. And before he got back to the house, his father noticed him in the distance and he went running like mad to meet him. Met him on the path, it must have been. And when they got together, the boy started his speech. He said, Father, I'm no longer worthy. And his dad interrupted him. And he started screaming for the real servants of the house to go kill the calf and make a feast because he said, my son who was lost 
is now home. It is an incredible act of grace. So the party started and the father noticed that the other brother was not there. So just like he went down the path after the one, he went out in the field after the other and said, why don't you come on in, man? We have a meal in your brother's home. This is what the boy said. He said, I have been in this field my entire life working for you, and this isn't fair. My brother can turn around and do all these kinds of things. I don't do any of those things, and I don't get anywhere near the benefit that he does. That son of yours, he said. Father caught it, and he said, he's not just my son, he's your brother. And your brother was lost and now he's found and there is a feast and I want you at it. And the way the story ends, rather troubling, isn't it? The one who was out living riotously is eating at the table with the father while the one who was out religiously, far as we know, never came in from the field. The meal was for both of them. The meal was for both of us. Both of us. Those of you that have done everything wrong and those of you that have done nothing wrong The meal is for both of us. Whether you're in prison because of consequences to your actions or you're in prison out of fear for what people would say about you if your desires ever were known, the meal is there for both of us. And whatever your condition this morning, you don't have to get over it before you come to the meal.